The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, we're going to read uh, Psalm 133. A song of ascents of David. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. We are in Deuteronomy 33, verses 18 through 22 today. Verse 18, And of Zebulun he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar in your tents. They shall call the peoples to the mountain. There they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness, for they shall partake of the abundance of the seas, and of the treasures hidden in the sand. And of Gad he said, Blessed is he who enlarges Gad. He dwells as a lion, and tears the arm and the crown of his head. He provided the first part for himself, because a lawgiver's portion was reserved there. He came with the heads of the people. He administered the justice of the Lord and his judgments with Israel. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's whelp. He shall leap from Bashan. Okay, the blessings of the individual tribes continue now with four more short blessings. The first two finish up the tribes of Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel. They then move to the sons of the handmaids, two of which will be seen today, and the other two will be in the final sermon of the chapter next week. Other than falling into the order of the sons of the wives and then the handmaids, the order seems rather obscure. The actual birth order goes Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and then his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and then finally Benjamin. The order of blessing now lists the sons in order of wives and then handmaids, but not necessarily in birth order. The wives, Reuben 1, Judah 4, inclusive of Simeon 2, Levi 3, Benjamin 12, Joseph 11, Ephraim and Manasseh are reversed, and then Zebulun 10. And then the handmaids, Gad 7, Dan 5, and then the last two, Naphtali 6, and Asher 8. So the numbers are all over the place. As such, the order doesn't really make much numerical sense. But as I have said, the layout closely matches a somewhat circular pattern around Jerusalem where the temple is located. The progression is generally from east to west and from south to north. But it also considers which tribes are of the wives and which are of the handmaids. The order goes first to the land outside of Canaan with the son of the wives, namely Leah. Then it essentially goes from south to north with the sons of the wives. Manasseh, a son of Joseph, whose mother is Rachel, however, has land on both sides of the Jordan River, which is dealt with together. When the sons of the wives are completed, it then goes east of the Jordan again to pick up the first of the sons of the handmaids. From there, Dan is named, 
But Dan is said by Moses to leap from Bashan. That is all the way to the very north of Israel. And so one might wonder why he is mentioned next. It is because he was first allocated land to the west of Canaan, midway up the land near Benjamin and Ephraim. However, the land he acquires in the north is situated where the Jordan issues from. As such, naming him before the other two tribes who descend from the handmaids makes complete sense. From there, the final two sons of the handmaids are the furthest north and west. And so the pattern essentially follows both a geographic surrounding of Jerusalem while also accounting for who was born to a wife of Jacob and who was born to a handmaid. It really is a unique and interesting pattern to consider, which only came to me while I was typing these sermons. Other than being interesting and definitely a pattern in how it comes about, if you accept predictive prophecy, it shows that Moses' blessing is inspired by the Lord. This is because Moses only knew where the division of the land for the three tribes east of the Jordan would be. He didn't know any more than that. Nothing else was known to him because the other divisions would only come after the land was occupied by Israel. Our text verse comes from Psalm 78. And he brought them to his holy border, this mountain which his right hand had acquired. He also drove out the nations before them allotted them an inheritance by survey, and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. Other than being a definite pattern and that it was laid out by Moses before it came about, I'm not personally sure what to make of it. But the fact that the tribes are laid out in this way based on the blessing of Moses inspires me, as do so many other curiosities in Scripture. There may be a deeper meaning. For example, the directions in the Bible each have their own meaning. The east is that which is before in time, like the rising of the sun, which comes first. The west is that which is after, as in the place where the setting of the sun is. The east is also the place of exile. Man was cast out of the garden with cherubim placed at the east. That matches the layout of the temple, which is laid out east to west and which must be accessed from the east. Outside of the most holy place, cherubim were woven into the veil on the east and facing east. The west is where the Lord dwells. It is that which has arrived at last. As such, the tabernacle is a picture of the way one goes from east, outside of God's favor, meaning before, to west, union with the Lord after. It is a journey where one returns to the presence of the Lord. It is the consummation of the trek man has been on since the fall, and it is one that is realized in the coming of Jesus Christ. Because Jerusalem is north of the equator, the south, which is the right hand, and that which is greater, is more illuminated. The left is that which is north, and which is increasingly dark and obscure. As such, one can see that Judah, meaning praise, which accompanies the land to the south or the right of the temple, is at the prominent position, the right hand. This is the tribe Jesus came from. He who is the praise of God now sits at the right hand, the position of prominence and authority of God. And yet, Benjamin, whose name means son of the right hand, is to the north side of the temple. Thus, the idea of the right hand that which is prominent and possesses authority literally encompasses the area of the temple. These things are all a part of how God laid out the tribes through the blessing of Moses upon them. 
to fully flesh out all the meaning that could be derived from these individual placements would be an immense and hugely rewarding study. There's just too much evidence for these things to be coincidence. There is marvelous beauty in everything seen, and it was all prophesied to be as it is even before Israel entered into the land. Many great things such as these are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is the blessings to Zebulun and Issachar. This verse is 18 and 19. Verse 18, and of Zebulun, he said, Ve lizvulun amar, and to Zebulun, he said, Zebulun is the sixth and final son born to Jacob's wife, Leah, and the tenth born to Jacob. He has another brother, Issachar, who was born to Leah before he was. And yet both Jacob and Moses first bless Zebulun before Issachar. The record of Zebulun's birth is found in Genesis 30. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Zebulun means glorious dwelling place. And so Leah's words at his birth and the words of Jacob when he blessed him in Genesis 49 both make a play on his name. Using the thought of dwelling, Jacob said, Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. Zebulun's inheritance is located north of the tribe of those of Manasseh who are situated within the borders of Canaan. As such, the pattern of the order of the tribes surrounding Jerusalem in a somewhat discernible manner continues on here. However, as noted in the introduction, because of Manasseh and Dan occupying more than one plot of land, this is not a hard and fast pattern, but it is surprising that the order of blessing continues so far to come as the tribes are further from the location of Jerusalem. To Zebulun, Moses proclaims, verse 18 continues, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out. It is exactingly translated, Semach Zebulun Betsetecha. Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out. The meaning of this is a blessing of trade and commerce and of skill and ability of war both of which are used concerning the word yatsa, or going out elsewhere. The original borders of Zebulun, according to the division of the land recorded in Joshua 19, does not include any sea borders. And yet, when Jacob blessed him, he said the following, Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea, he shall become a haven for ships, and his borders shall adjoin Sidon. In those words, the word sea is plural. Literally, it says, Zebulun lechof yamim yishkon. Zebulun at the shore of the seas shall dwell. What it implies is that this tribe would fill the land between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea, or at least they would have access to them. In the next clause, the Hebrew literally says, and he to a shore of ships. Even if he had no direct access to a shore, his inheritance included access to a shore where ships are unloaded. Actually, this is twofold in nature. The first is seen in Issachar's coming blessing. Because Zebulun is blessed before his older brother Issachar, it implies that the land of Issachar is jointly used by Zebulun, who has been given priority over Issachar. This is the case in both the blessing of Jacob 
and of Moses. This explains the reason for the blessing of both Jacob and Moses upon Zebulun before Issachar. Even though Issachar was born first, Zebulun could gain access to the Sea of Galilee by traveling through the inheritance of Issachar. However, he not only had access there, but also through Sidon, the land to the north and outside of Canaan. Sidon was the firstborn of Canaan. His territory was at the northerly end of the land of Canaan, and it is known for its prominent cities, Tyre and Sidon, cities still known and occupied at Jesus' time. The city of Sidon was at the extreme northern border between Canaan and Lebanon, quite a long way from Zebulun. But the larger territory was known for the city. This is just like the city of Tokyo in the prefecture of Tokyo. If you've ever been there, you know this. Tokyo is this dinky, small little place. But the prefecture of Tokyo is very large. The use of the name of the city for the larger territory is seen in the Gospel of Luke. Here's what it says in Luke 4. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. The name Sidon means catching fish or plenty of fish. Because the name Sidon was also given in Jacob's prophecy, the Bible confirms that Zebulun will have a portion of coastal territory for its use. But as noted a minute ago, the term goings out, yatsa, is also used when referring to warfare. Zebulun is noted for its skill in warfare in Judges chapter 4 and 5, especially as is recorded in the Song of Deborah. As such, Moses prophesies over Zebulun and blesses him in this manner. Next, verse 18 continues, and Issachar in your tents. Again, the translation is correct. Ve'yisachar be'ohalecha, and Issachar in your tents. Issachar is the fifth son born to Leah and the ninth born to Jacob. Issachar's land is just to the east of Zebulun and a little closer to Jerusalem, but that doesn't really harm the pattern of the tribes encircling the temple. Rather, it actually highlights it because of their situation in relation to Gad, who will next be named. The record of Issachar's birth is found in Genesis chapter 30. Now Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, therefore, he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, boy, this guy had all kinds of problems, didn't he? You must come into me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. His name means he is wages. As for Moses' blessing, dwelling in one's tent gives a sense of peace, quietude, and contentment. The sentiment of Moses is not unlike portions of the blessing of Jacob upon this fifth son of Leah. Here's what it says. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and he became a band of slaves. 
In the blessing of these two sons, one can see the contrasting parallel. Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar, in your tents. It's an AA pattern. The rejoicing applies to both. For Zebulun, it is the bustle of commercial life, trade, shipping, warfare, and so on. For Issachar, it is the quiet pursuit of agriculture and home life. For both, Moses continues, verse 19, they shall call the peoples to the mountain. Amim har yikra'u, people's mountain they call. The idea of these words is that from this area, there shall be a call to the sacred mountain, the mountain of the Lord. This is literally fulfilled in the words of Isaiah concerning the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. And when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death Upon them, a light has shined. This is cited in Matthew 4 as a direct reference to the ministry of the gospel going forth in this area. Because Issachar is blessed with Zebulun, they are, therefore, implicitly included in what is said by Isaiah. Even though Jesus' earthly ministry was specifically only to the people of Israel, it extended to Gentiles at times, and eventually the new covenant went out to all peoples. This is certainly the reference here. As such, verse 19 continues, there they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness. Sham yuzbechu zivche tzedek. There they offer sacrifices righteous. The sacrifices of the righteous are not simply sacrifices upon the altar. David, Isaiah, and others confirm this. For example, from Psalm 51, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise." Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Only when the heart is right are sacrifices considered righteous. If the previous clause is referring to the ministry of Christ, this one, which is set in parallel, must as well. It is what Paul refers to in several ways, such as from Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The great light of Isaiah 9, the spreading of the gospel in Galilee of the Gentiles, leads to the righteous sacrifices being acceptable to God as they are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Next, Moses notes, verse 19 continues, for they shall partake of the abundance of the seas. Ki shefa yamim yinaku, for abundance seas, they suck. The word shefa or abundance is found only here in scripture. It is from an unused root, meaning to abound. It is referring to the two seas which lay on either side, Galilee 
and the Mediterranean. Due to their closeness, they would benefit from that which is derived from them. The word yanak means to suck, but it is consistently always used of nursing a child as when babies are suckled. Because the seas in both directions lead to interaction with the Gentiles, I would say this continues to refer to the ministry of Christ expanding to them, something that occurred in the Gospels and which has continued for millennia. Further, verse 19 continues, and of the treasures hidden in the sand. It is a very complicated clause, maybe the most complicated. The first two words are plural verbs, forming a play on words, usafune temune chol, and concealed, hidden sand. Another unique word is seen here, safan. It comes from a root meaning to conceal, and so it refers to hiding. Next, the word and is tied to the thought, for they suck. Thus, it is saying that they will partake of that thing which is hidden and concealed in the sand. But even the word sand is to be taken in connection with the words hidden and concealed. As such, the whole thought reads something like, and they will suck of the most hidden things. And so, this is a direct reference to the words of Jesus and of the continued words of the apostles. From Luke 10 first, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Think of a babe sucking. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And then from Colossians 3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The verses together or the clauses together form an A-A-B-B pattern. People's mountain they call, therefore they offer sacrifice righteous. And then the B, for abundance seas they suck and concealed hidden sand. Apart from the teachings of the Lord, including the gospel, the words have such a dubious meaning that they could mean almost anything. But in the light of the gospel, they make complete sense, especially when Jesus compares those who receive his words to babes. Next, we will see Gad and Dan. When I bless you, you shall be blessed, and upon you shall come the blessings I state. When it is for comfort, you shall not be hard-pressed, and when it is for love, there shall be no hate. With my blessing, you will be blessed. You shall abound in the good things I proclaim. You need do nothing to receive it. You need take no test. My blessing is grace that stems from my name. Listen to my blessing and know it is true. It shall come to pass the words that I proclaim. The blessings I state shall come upon you because my blessing is grace that stems from my name. Our second thought today, the blessings to Gad and Dan. It's verses 20 through 22. Verse 20, and of Gad he said, Ule Gad Amar. And to Gad he said, Gad is the first son born to Leah's handmaid Zilpah and the seventh born to Jacob. Gad is east of Issachar and also east of the Jordan. The land extends from the Sea of Galilee almost to the Dead Sea, across from Benjamin. As such, it provides a buffer to the east for Jerusalem. 
The record of his birth is noted in Genesis 30. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob, his wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, a troop comes. So she called his name Gad. Gad means a troop, but it also means good fortune. Of him, Moses says, verse 20 continues, blessed is he who enlarges Gad. Baruch machriv Gad. Blessed he enlarges Gad. Gad settled east of the Jordan and in a very large parcel. The thought of saying, blessed is he who enlarges Gad, is referring to what has already happened, even though it is stated as if it's ongoing. The Lord provided a great expanse for Gad. And so Gad is enlarged into the future as he fills that expanse, continuing to subdue it. Verse 20 continues, he dwells as a lion. Kelavi shaken. As lion, he dwells. This is referring to his residence in the land given to him. Despite it being already apportioned out to him by the Lord, it still had inhabitants in it from the nations who had settled it long before. Therefore, to dwell as a lion means that he is ready to pounce, taking dominion over that which belongs to him. That then leads to the next thought. Verse 20 continues, And tears the arm and the crown of his head. Vitaraf zeruah af kadekod, and has torn arm, yea, crown of head. The arm is the symbol of strength. The crown of the head symbolizes leadership and command. The symbolism then is that of Gad dwelling in his land, ever ready to enlarge his dominion over the area that he has already been provided. Here's how it reads. Blessing he enlarges Gad. It's the ultimate force behind Gad's enlargement. He is the enlarger, the Lord. And then it's an AA pattern after that. As lion he dwells, and he has torn arm, yea, crown of head. Though this speaks of Gad and his dominion, it ultimately surely anticipates Christ, who is equated to a lion, even if from Judah, who destroyed the strength and the authority of the devil. Verse 21, he provided the first part for himself. Ve'yar reshit lo. And he saw first to himself. To see signifies to attend to, as in, see to it yourself. Hence, this is referring to the land that was subdued east of the Jordan before entering Canaan. When it was seen, Gad wanted it and determined to have it for his possession. This is what is being referred to. Next, verse 21 continues, because a lawgiver's portion was reserved there. Chelkat mechokek safun. Portion, lawgiver, covered. Here's a new word, safan. It signifies to cover, such as in paneling a house. It is the root of the unique word safan just introduced in verse 19. It is assumed here that the lawgiver is Moses. As such, it would then mean that the portion of land granted by Moses to Gad is preserved for Gad. Verse 21 continues, he came with the heads of the people. And he comes heads people. This is referring to the agreement made allowing Gad and the other tribes to remain in the land east of the Jordan. It was a great passage if you remember that. So Moses gave the command concerning them to Eliezer the priest, to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the chief fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel. And Moses said to them, If the children of Gad and the children of Reuben cross over the Jordan with you, every man armed for battle before the Lord, and the land is subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead as a possession. But 
If they do not cross over armed with you, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. The conditions were agreed upon, and thus Gad, named first in regard to these tribes, was to lead the people in the conquest of Canaan. Verse 21 continues, he administered the justice of the Lord. Sidkat Yehovah Asa, justice Yehovah, he has done. The thought is to be considered with the next clause. Verse 21 continues, and his judgments with Israel. Umishpata im Yisrael, and his judgments with Israel. This and the previous clause could mean one of two things. Either he executed the judgments and justice of the Lord upon Canaan, or he complied with the justice and judgments of the Lord that were set in the conditions for him to return to his land. Either way, the two clauses are referring to Gad's obedience in going forth with Israel in order to secure their own possession in the land east of the Jordan. Here's how it reads, A-A-A-B-B. And he saw first to himself, portion, lawgiver, covered. And then A-B-B, and he comes, heads people. Justice, Jehovah, he has done, and his judgments with Israel. Verse 22, and of Dan he said, Ule Dan Amar. And to Dan he said, Dan is the first son born to Rachel's handmaid, Bilhah, and the fifth born to Jacob. Dan's allotment was originally west of Ephraim, and so it would seem that the pattern of the tribes encircling the area of Jerusalem is disturbed in this placement. But that would be incorrect. Rather, Dan fills the area westward even to the Mediterranean Sea, but Dan eventually moved to the extreme north of the land in an area where the Jordan River begins, just below Mount Hermon. It straddles that, and so it meets together with the half-tribe of Manasseh to the east and Naphtali to the west. As such, it is fitting that Dan is now mentioned, rather than where it was originally allocated land as noted in Joshua. The record of his birth is found in Genesis chapter 30. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who is withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So she said, Here is my maid Bilhah. Go into her, and she will bear a child on my knees, that I also may have children by her. Then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, as wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Dan means judge. Of him, Moses says. Verse 22 continues, Dan is a lion's whelp. Dan gur aryeh. Dan, whelp, lion. There is a play on words in this that is not yet evident. Moses is equating Dan with a lion, prophetically indicating both where and how he would settle. And this, despite the allocation for land originally given to him in Joshua. That is seen with the next words. Verse 22 continues, He shall leap from Bashan. Yezanek min habashan. He leaps from the Bashan. Here is a word found only this once in the Bible. Zanak. It comes from a root, meaning to draw together the feet as an animal, as it would when it is about to dart upon prey. Hence it means to spring forward. Moses identifies Dan with the Bashan, an area to the extreme north of the land, and as I noted, it straddles the area that leads into the Jordan River. 
Now, before I go on, just so you know, Sergio and Rhoda love that part of Israel. They say it's just like Tuscany in Italy. Beautiful, beautiful part of the the uh, land of Israel. But more, when Moses goes to view the land before he dies, this is recorded there. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan. Despite the lot for Dan being drawn in a completely different area, it was already known that Dan would settle to the far north, even beyond the land of Gilead. The lengthy record of the events of them moving to this area is found in Judges 18. That's your reading assignment for today. Read the whole chapter. Toward the end of the chapter, it says this. So they took the things Micah had made and the priest who had belonged to him and went to Laish, to a people quiet and secure. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. There was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon and they had no ties with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. So they rebuilt the city and dwelt there. And they called the name of the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their father, who was born to Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. The name Laish means lion. Dan sprang forth upon Laish, lion, just as a lion springs forth. Hence, Moses is making a prophetic pun upon what would occur in the future as Dan took its place to the far north. With the short blessing complete, one can see the simple A-B structure of it. A, Dan, whelp, lion. B, he leaps from the Bashan. Because of the obvious fulfillment of the words of Moses, liberal scholars naturally take this along with many other words of the blessings as having been written many generations later. That is completely dismissive of the idea that God could inspire his prophets to proclaim the future. As such, it is dismissive of the fact that this is God's word. If these things were written later, then they would be the writings of man without God's inspiration. And if this is so, then the Bible is simply a collection of man's writings without any spiritual value at all. Because man is, after all, a corrupt, fallen being. But the writings here in Deuteronomy are God's inspired words. I have personally never seen any study on the layout of these tribes as I have mentioned them to you at the beginning of this sermon. And yet, they form a definite and distinct pattern. Therefore, it is its own confirmation that these are the words of Moses as inspired by the Lord. They were not written later in order to fulfill some sort of preset or man-determined pattern. If they were, the pattern would have been noted and everyone would have known about it all along. And this is the same with dozens of other patterns that we have drawn out from the text as we have proceeded through the books of Moses. Dozens of them. Whether they are geographical, ancestorial, numerical, word-based, such as chiasms or other types of patterns, we have come across so many that have never been seen before that it is beyond credulity that they came about by mere chance. And yet, as far as I know, there's no historical record of them having been noted by anyone else. This means that they were probably never seen before by anyone. And yet, they are there and they are unmistakable. That's why it's been such a pleasure going through the journey of Genesis through Deuteronomy, finding these things that have been secreted away for thousands of years. And because many of them overlap with other things that also form patterns, they could not they could not have been inserted later. They had to be there all along. Chiasms, for example, and you've seen many of the chiasms that we've discovered as we've gone along. 
they may overlap many verses that are prophetic in nature. If those prophetic verses were inserted later as scholars who deny prophecy claim, then the chiasm would not exist. Understanding these things, we have to either accept that this is truly the word of God, telling in advance what will come to pass before it happens, or this book is the greatest aberration in the history of the universe because things that could not otherwise exist, in fact, do exist. Where will you place your faith? If this book is not the word of God, then everything about it, everything about it that speaks of Jesus, every word of it is false. This is because Jesus himself clearly stated that this is, in fact, the word of God and that it testifies to who he is. One cannot logically state it happens in churches all the time. I want you to know this, but it is not logical. It is unclear thinking. I accept the premise of the New Testament and I believe in Jesus, and yet I do not accept as inspired the words of the Old Testament. The thinking is confused, it is erratic, and it is clearly unclear. It is no different than someone saying, I believe in Jesus, and yet I do not believe that he is the only way to be reconciled to God. That is a logical contradiction, because Jesus himself said that he is the only way to be reconciled to God. If you don't believe what he says, then you don't believe him. And if he is a liar, then why? Please, tell me why you would want to believe in him. If you want to follow a God that lies to you, I can direct you to a lot of other gods. You can pick any of them, and you will get exactly what you're looking for. But if you want to follow the God who is truthful because he is the truth, I can only direct you to one God. He is the God of the Bible, and he is the embodiment of truth. And because scripture is given by him, it tells us about him, you can be fully confident that scripture is absolute truth. Be sound in your thinking, be confident in your theology, and be right in your doctrine. Come to the source of all wisdom and truth. Come to Jesus, the word of God. And when I say that, Jesus is the embodiment of truth, so everything about Jesus is true. And he is the embodiment of God's grace and his mercy. He's the embodiment of God's wisdom. Everything about God is found in Jesus Christ. So why would you want to go somewhere else? When you see the face of Jesus someday, you are going to see the source of every good thing that has ever existed or that ever will exist for all of eternity. You will see the source of it. So please understand that Jesus Christ is the hope of the human heart, whether people realize it or not. And why do you think it is that so many people are actively working against Christ in this world today? It's because Jesus said exactly this was going to happen. There is a time when the world is going to turn away from the truth and they're going to follow after their own fables and their own lies. And he said, just like it was in the days of Noah, it's going to be then. And what does it say in Genesis 6? The whole world was filled with wickedness. It was corrupt, completely corrupt. And what do you see today? Every single day I turn on the news and I find something worse than the day before. The amount of perversion that is going on in this world right now is unbelievable. Amen. You need to escape that, and there's only one escape from it, and that is through the hope of Jesus Christ. He died for your sins, implying that you're a sinner. He was buried, meaning he was really dead, and he came out of the grave proving that one, he had no sin, Two, that your sin remains in the grave, never to be brought up again. And three, he is God. Because only God 
is without sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. Only God is without sin. And so call on Jesus, believe that simple gospel message that people just rip right over all the time and be saved. That's what I would ask you today. Our closing verse comes from Luke 24. He said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Everything is either about Jesus or it's all a lie. You have the choice to make. He said it. And we have seen, I'm telling you what, we have seen from Genesis 1 verse 1 all the way through that Jesus has revealed again and again and again. I was reading Deuteronomy, uh, uh, what was it, maybe uh, 19 or 20, somewhere right around there this morning. And I remember those sermons and they're just these kind of funny things. You know, you got uh, somebody is dead out in the field, right? And you need to make atonement for that. So you go to the closest city and you find a, a animal and you take it down there and the people pray over it and you kill that animal there and the blood will be... What does all that mean? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. The entire chapter is three different stories or three different things that the people are to do. And it doesn't make any sense. But when you go back and watch that sermon on Deuteronomy, you'll say... I can't believe it. Every single word is pointing to the work of Jesus Christ. Every word of it. It is all about what he has done. And it's all revealed. It's not like it's, I'm guessing here. It's all revealed in the New Testament. It is a perfect word because as he said, concerning me, it's all about Jesus. Call on him today. Next week is Deuteronomy 33. It's verses 23 through 29. Moses is almost through blessing, but there's still a little more. It's entitled, Moses Blesses Israel. Part four. That'll be our 103rd Deuteronomy sermon. Very good, Jay. Uh, You must have stubbed your toe this morning. You're a little high, but that was very, very good. I can't wait till he gets back. He called me yesterday, right when I was having a crisis on the uh, computer. I was trying to get somebody hooked up with something, and it was on YouTube, and I needed to have a code sent to me. And for some reason, it either sends the code to my mom or it sends it to Sergio in Israel. And I need this code very badly. Jay called right then. I'm like, Jay, I, I, I was beside myself. I'm like, he says, I'll go, I'll go. Well, I called him right back and we talked. But I got the code from Sergio. happened to still be up and he took care of me. But, but uh, I, I miss Jay when he's here. But you did a great job filling. Have you got another? No, we don't have any more weeks. That's it. You had your two big... Moments in history. Okay. Actually, you had a really big one today. Way better than any. Way better. Ah, good stuff. Okay. Um, The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. My dad just walked in. You know, he came in a little late. Uh, You didn't see the fun and festivities today, but we had a full bird colonel up here get on his knee and propose to a a returning missionary from from, uh, Thailand. So he's got double thumbs up. He's pretty happy for you guys. So here you go. And uh, so make sure before they get out of here, you give them a big congratulations, okay? It was good stuff. Very happy for both of them. Okay, uh, as I was saying, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you, and that's proved. I mean, you look at the the things that had to come together for that to happen a lot, okay? He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. I'd like both of you to start reading the verses on marriage from the Bible just to brush up on those things. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? 
All right. Now, I've got a uh, question for you before I give you the very short poem, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Um, where in Paul's epistles does he mandate fasting? Fasting. Hey, you got it first, but I heard a couple others follow right behind you. Good. He does not mandate it anywhere. Fasting is not mandated in the New Testament. Neither is not eating pork. Neither is tithing. Neither are a lot of other things that people just shove into other people's lives and say, you need to do this. Very good. Um, I'm going to let, because he's got the officer's uniform on, that means he's obviously capable to fly, so I'm going to let him fly you around in this today. Okay? Okay. Moses blesses Israel, part three. And of Zebulun he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar in your tents. Give a shout. They shall call the peoples to the mountain. There they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness in the land. For they shall partake of the abundance of the seas and of treasures hidden in the sand. And of Gad he said, Blessed is he who enlarges Gad. He dwells as a lion in his spread and tears the arm and the crown of his head. He provided the first part for himself because the lawgiver's portion was reserved there. He came with the heads of the people, so to you I tell. He administered the justice of the Lord and his judgments with Israel. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's whelp going on and on. He shall leap from Bashan. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to peer into your word and to see the wonderful riches that are hidden there. Thank you for the lessons we can learn from it and the moral lessons, the historical lessons, all kinds of things that we can learn from. But most of all, we learn that Jesus is there being revealed so that when he comes, we have no doubt that he is the one that you had ordained to do so. Thank you for that. Lord, we've got a couple of people that uh, we'd like to lift up right now. We've got Kate and we have, um, what was, oh, my friend um, Emma who we mentioned at the beginning of the service, the two ladies that are having won some difficult trials in life and won some health trials. Lord, be with those two ladies. And we certainly pray for blessing and abundance upon the newly engaged couple. Please guide their steps all the days of their lives. We thank you for these things. We praise you and we exalt you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.